Welcome back to the 10 Blocks podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg officially entered the race for the Democratic presidential nomination last week. One of his first public speeches before his announcement was an apology for the controversial policing practice in New York during his administration known as Stop and Frisk, which we've covered extensively here at City Journal in writing about the city's remarkable crime reduction gains during the 2000s. But that's not the only thing Michael Bloomberg did in his 12 years as mayor of New York. During his mayoralty, the city added nearly 200 charter schools. Entire new developments arose. Think Hudson Yards, downtown Brooklyn, and Long Island City. There's the infamous ban on large sodas, or big gulps as they came to be known, and other policies that we'll try to cover here today. Coming up on the show, our associate editor Seth Barron will interview four City Journal contributors to talk about Bloomberg's record on crime, education, economic development, and more. That's it for the introduction. After the music, Seth Barron will begin our first discussion with Ralph Manguel to talk about Bloomberg's record on crime and policing, including the stop and frisk question. We hope you enjoy. Thank you. Welcome back to 10 Blocks, the podcast of City Journal. This is your host for today, Seth Barron, associate editor of City Journal. The mayoralty of New York City has long been seen as a graveyard for political ambition. Mayor de Blasio has already dropped out of the 2020 race for the Democratic nomination for the presidency. And now former Mayor Mike Bloomberg has entered the fray. But he's done so by walking back some key policies of his administration, and some would argue uh, the most effective aspects of his uh, policies. I'm joined today by Rafael Mangual, fellow and deputy director of legal policy at the Manhattan Institute and contributing editor to City Journal. Ralph writes frequently on criminology, violence, and public order. Ralph, thank you for joining us today on 10 Blocks. Thanks so much for having me, Seth. So Mike Bloomberg made some pretty controversial remarks a few weeks ago uh, about criminal justice and what he did when he was mayor. What did he say exactly? Well, in essence, he apologized for what the New York City Police Department did uh, under his watch with respect to stop and frisk. Stop and frisk, uh, as many of our listeners probably already know, um, basically is a term of art that describes um, a procedure in which police in the street can stop and briefly detain uh, suspects they reasonably believe to be involved in a crime. And when they reasonably believe that those suspects are armed and dangerous, they can frisk the outside of their clothing and pat them down to ensure that they don't have a weapon. Now, um, under Bloomberg, stops and frisks conducted by the NYPD continued to rise over the years um, that he was mayor. And um, that was one of the main points of criticism for a lot of um, people who sort of opposed proactive policing in most of its forms um, throughout uh, throughout Bloomberg's time in, in New York City. So I think he saw that as a, as a liability for his candidacy and, and decided to apologize. Okay. Now, stop and frisk, as you just described it, that's was ter- turned out to be an unconstitutional practice, correct? Well, the way that the NYPD had done it as to a group of plaintiffs that brought a lawsuit against the department was ruled uh, unconstitutional. But stop and frisk in and of itself um, is still a constitutionally valid practice that, that police, including the New York City Police Department, continue to engage in to this day. Um, the, the practice was recognized as constitutionally permissible in a Supreme Court case, Terry versus Ohio. Um, since that case, which is now 50 years old, um, the Supreme Court has not uh, rejected that, that prior holding. And so um, the actual practice of stopping people for whom there is reasonable suspicion to believe uh, they're involved in a crime is still constitutionally valid practice. What some courts have held uh, throughout the years, including uh, a, district, a federal district court here in New York, is that certain uh, practices uh, – within certain departments around the country as to specific sets of plaintiffs um, violate the rules set out in that Supreme Court precedent. But that Supreme Court precedent is still constitutionally valid. So I guess I'm missing something. What is the, what did he, who, who did he apologize to? Well, he apologized essentially um, 
to the black and, and, and Latino community, as he put it, um, who uh, many critics point out, were more often uh, than, than their white counterparts in New York City the subjects of stops and frisks, uh, as reported by the NYPD. Um, so it was a racist policy? Is that what you're saying? Well, that's certainly what his critics, um, how his critics would characterize it. What they ignore is that, you know, stops and frisks were in large part a function of how police resources were deployed. Um, and we know that police deployed their resources more to higher crime areas of New York City, which um, unfortunately were um, oftentimes uh, areas with high minority populations. So the fact that um, there were more blacks and Hispanics stopped than their portion of the population may, may suggest when you consider um, the number of violent crime shootings specifically um, committed by blacks and Hispanics in New York City, um, the numbers actually start to make a little more sense. He did make this one comment, and I, I don't know, he had said this once in the past, and I guess it came back and people were talking about it, that at one point he said that um, white people were actually understopped when he was mayor, that white people should have, um, I'm sorry, that white people were overstopped right. and that he should have stopped fewer white people. Does that make sense? Well, you know, uh, without the data in front of me, uh, it doesn't sound like it was a particularly politically smart thing for him to say. Um, but we do know that more than 90% of, of shootings in New York City uh, are committed by blacks and Hispanics, or at least historically um, from the 90s through the 2000s. So it, it really wouldn't make sense to deploy police resources, say, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, where violent crime rates are, are pretty low as compared to East New York um, or Brownville, Brooklyn, where a lot of these stops were taking place. So that's really what this was all about, was shootings. This was about stop and frisk was about... Um, reducing the number of shootings and homicides? It was it was aimed largely at reducing the number of shootings and homicides, but it was also it also had the effect of reducing crime generally, right? I mean, this is one of the things that um, I don't think a lot of people appreciate but should, which is that the increased presence of police on the street and the communication of those police to residents that they were going to be willing to get out of their cars and engage with people and initiate interactions, that that prevalence, that that recognition among the general public, um, at least among the, the, the criminal actors uh, within the general public, deterred some of their actions. So you saw things like um, crime declines in the areas where the New York City Police Department was concentrating most of these stops and frisks. And this is, again, something that I think is just unappreciated in this discussion. You know, people, especially critics of Bloomberg these days, like to point out that you know, as the New York City Police Department started reporting fewer stops and frisks um, over time, that crime did not increase. And they see this as the kind of death knell, you know, of that policy and, and proof positive that it, that it was ineffective. But one study that was done in 2014 did what's called a microgeographic micro analysis and basically looked at the small parts of the city where an outsized portion of those stops were concentrated. And when you do that kind of analysis, when you don't use uh, the unit of measurement, be, when the unit of measurement is not the city or a borough, um, when you drill down into high crime areas, it found that there was actually a very significant deterrent effect on crime um, that was related specifically to the stops being conducted by the New York City. Police Department. Okay, but he was the mayor of the whole city. So did murders and crime go down? They did, significantly. I mean, crime uh, continued to decline at a, at a very rapid pace, uh, despite very sharp declines um, in the 1990s prior to Bloomberg taking office. I think a lot of people would have sort of uh, sat on their laurels um, or on the laurels of New York and, and basically said, well, look, you know, we've gotten down this far, and that's great. Um, but Bloomberg didn't do that to his credit. He continued um, to chase further declines and achieve them. And that, I, you know, again, resulted in uh, countless numbers of lives saved over the years. Now, under de Blasio, and Mayor de Blasio has pointed this out, the number of stop, stops and frisks is perhaps one-tenth of what it was at the height of the practice under Bloomberg, yet homicides and crime generally continued to go down. Right. So I know you alluded to this before, but doesn't that indicate that maybe there's a disjunction between the two, the two 
Yeah, you know, you would think so. And from a surface level, that's certainly how it seems. But um, that that counter argument fails to to consider one very important factor, which is how New York City changed over those years, right? Um, for example, 13 of, of New York City's police precincts um, in the year 2000, just before Michael Bloomberg took office, had um, 20 or more homicides. Um, by the time he, uh, by the time stop numbers started to decline in 2014, that number was down to one. Um, New York City simply had fewer dangerous neighborhoods because over those years of consistent crime decline, those neighborhoods were able to change and become significantly safer. And they did that in part by sort of growing their low crime committing populations. And that's important because irrespective of how police policy changes, you wouldn't expect low crime populations to suddenly become high crime populations. And so the fact that the city changed in these very important and tangible ways um, means uh, that you that, that it's not actually particularly surprising that as stops declined, you didn't see a crazy increase in crime um, as a result of that because New York City was not the same city that it was when Bloomberg took office. When you say low crime committing populations, what do you mean? People, for example, who've com uh, completed high school, um, who have some college or have attained college degrees, um, you know, married households, people who are earning, you know, a middle class salary. Um, you know, all these populations grew over time in a lot of the areas of, of New York City where, um, you know, that that was not always the case. I mean, you know, what one one neighborhood uh, to consider would be, you know, Fort Greene and um, and Bedford Stuyvesant, Brooklyn. I mean, the face of these neighborhoods, um, you know, has changed in a lot of important ways. There's been a lot of economic development. Um, and all this has has resulted in uh, in, you know, a much uh, lower proportion of those neighborhoods having criminal actors or consisting of criminal actors, I should say. So. Mike Bloomberg made his apology. Uh, what was the effect? Did it take? Did Are people forgiving him? I'm not sure that they are. I think a lot of people um, are going to continue to see this as kind of a cynical political calculation. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't think he's probably going to get all that much credit for this, at least, you know, um, not from his most ardent critics. Um, but it, it'll be interesting uh, to see whether this was something that he was just kind of going through the motions on or, or whether um, this is a, a thread that he picks up over the course of his campaign as it, as it grows and, and continues. I mean, we know that uh, among the Democratic candidates, criminal justice reform is one of the sort of main talking points. Um, and, you know, he hasn't yet told us where he's going to go on broader questions of criminal justice. But you know, I think one way to kind of judge his sincerity on this will be uh, to see whether he subscribes to the, the kind of broader decarceration policies that a lot of his uh, um, fellow candidates are, are, are pursuing and getting behind. Stay tuned as we discuss some other aspects of Michael Bloomberg's mayoralty and its implications on the coming race for the Democratic nomination. Ralph Mangual, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm joined now by Eric Kober. Eric is a retired New York City planner and currently adjunct fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research. Eric, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So what can you tell us about how Mike Bloomberg, what, what, what was his approach to planning the city? What did he do in terms of building it out, economic development, zoning, housing? I think that, uh, uh, first of all, he delegated uh, those responsibilities to a, a very strong team. And, and he had a, a strong team throughout uh, his 12 years. But initially, uh, the deputy mayor for economic development and rebuilding was Dan Doktoroff. Uh, the chair of the city planning commission was Amanda Burden. And the uh, uh, commissioner of housing preservation and development was uh, Sean Donovan. And uh, they saw their task really as putting the city on a f sound economic footing for the long term. Uh, they were coming out of the recession that, that followed 9-11. Uh, the city clearly had a problem of short-term fiscal stabilization. Uh, but they really saw their goal as uh, setting the city up 
so that it would no longer be subject to the boom and bust cycles of uh, economic uh, growth and then steep recessions uh, that it had experienced over the previous several decades. So did this take the form of um, div- trying to diversify the city's economic base? or It certainly did. The city was perceived as being very dependent on the financial industry. Tech was beginning to have a significant presence in New York. Uh, It was certainly seen as a major growth sector and diversifying essentially the the sort of sophisticated business base that provides the bulk of the city's tax revenues, either directly or indirectly, was very important. In uh, 2000, the year 2000, during the Giuliani administration, uh, Senator Schumer had sponsored a report by what was called the Group of 35, uh, which had uh, recommended as uh, uh, sort of support for future growth, uh, particularly in the tech industry, that the city rezone uh, three areas, Long Island City, downtown Brooklyn, and the area of, on the west side of Manhattan that ultimately was renamed uh, Hudson Yards. And uh, uh, the Long Island City rezoning had proceeded in the uh, uh, previous administration Uh, The Bloomberg uh, uh, team proceeded to uh, undertake rezonings in downtown Brooklyn and in uh, Hudson Yards, which were uh, completed in his first term. So we're talking about Barclays Center. Is that the Brooklyn, what you're talking about in Brooklyn? Uh, Barclays Center was actually a state project, which was separate from the downtown Brooklyn rezoning, which was focused on the sort of core downtown area around uh, Fulton Street and, and environs. Uh, and uh, that rezoning was, was oriented toward enhancing the office component of downtown Brooklyn, and it turned out to be extremely successful in a different way by promoting the construction of large amounts of housing. So that uh, downtown Brooklyn, which had very little housing in the year 2000, now has, has uh, thousands of units uh, of new housing that have been constructed in the last two decades, a relatively small amount of additional commercial space. And Long Island City, as we all know, has um, really exploded. Uh, How many new units of housing have been built there in the last 20 years? Uh, I don't have that number off the top of my head, but it's certainly in the tens of thousands of of units. And again, uh, Long Island City had been intended as an office core and ended up uh, seeing uh, relatively little uh, commercial development, but a very large number of new residential units. And uh, that lesson was taken to uh, the Hudson Yards rezoning, where uh, the zoning plan that was ultimately enacted uh, put its thumbs on the scale and really required that office buildings uh, be constructed in uh, what was seen as the core area, which was close to the new subway station that was uh, constructed at 34th Street and 11th Avenue. And so unlike downtown Brooklyn and Long Island City, uh, Hudson Yards has come much closer to the vision of creating a new office core for the growth of the city's uh, most advanced uh, and sophisticated businesses. So would you say Hudson Yards has been a success, or does it point the way to being a success? I mean, it's a controversial project. I mean, it, it's sort of fascinating to think that they paved over or platformed over uh, and created new Manhattan. I mean, they created new blocks. Uh, well, Hudson Yards is much bigger than just the development over uh, the, the portion of the Long Island Railroad storage yards between 10th and 11th Avenues. It actually goes all the way north to 42nd Street. The concept of Hudson Yards was that the revenues uh, generated by new development uh, would not only pay for the platforming over uh, the rail yards, but also uh, provide the revenues to pay off the bonds that were uh, uh, issued to, to build the subway and the park. Uh, that was built uh, between uh, 11th and 12th Avenues. And in fact, uh, uh, while the city uh, had to pay about $300 million of interest, so to speak, out of its own pocket before 
development began to generate sufficient revenues, uh, the financial goals uh, were ultimately met uh, in the in in the past few years, and and uh, the bonds were successfully refinanced, and the city is no longer uh, needing to to support them uh, with its own revenues. So in that sense, it has been successful, and it has also uh, been successful in inducing uh, uh, significant amounts of new office space, uh, unlike the, the earlier rezonings. Um, what about the High Line? That was a key project that, that happened under, um, under Bloomberg and that has become kind of a model for, uh, you know, groups around the world looking to repurpose old rail lines, space like that. Um, what can you say about how the High Line, you know, figures in the city landscape, also in terms of, you know, the, the revitalization of that area? It's, um, it's, it hasn't been without its critics, but at the same time, it is celebrated. Well, the High Line was actually a, a very complex project to pull off, and I think that one of the uh, uh, illustrative of the, uh, of the strengths of, of the Bloomberg team uh, and, and its ability to, uh, uh, to pull off very complex projects. The High Line was an abandoned freight line. It was owned by a railroad. Uh, it had to go through the, uh, uh, the railroad abandonment process, which is mandated by uh, uh, federal law, uh, and uh, ultimately uh, uh, was transferred uh, to, to the city. And, and reconstructed as a, a city park. Uh, and at the same time, the city rezoned uh, the area around the High Line, and it has become a, a major tourist attraction, uh, and as you've said, a, a model for similar projects around the world. And uh, also significant uh, uh, generator of, of new, new residential uh, units as well. Uh, in the surrounding blocks. Again, the important thing here is, is that a plan was, was enacted with the, you know, the, all the community consultation uh, that, that is involved in, in, in enacting complicated plans and successfully implemented with a lot of different moving parts that, that had to be put into place. Eric Kober, thanks for joining us on 10 Blocks to discuss the development legacy of Michael Bloomberg. Thank you. Joining us on 10 Blocks to discuss Michael Bloomberg's education policies when he was the mayor of New York City is Ray Domenico. Ray is the director of education policy at the Manhattan Institute. Ray, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. So a lot happened under Bloomberg's term as mayor uh, regarding the schools, starting with his absorption of the power of uh, running the schools. Well, can you talk about what that meant? Centralization, mayoral control? Sure. Prior to 2002, when uh, Michael Bloomberg took office as mayor of the city of New York, for the previous 30 years or so, the school system was run with very disjointed governance. There was a board of education uh, of seven members. The mayor appointed two members, and each of the city's borough presidents the equivalent of county executives in the rest of the country, uh, also appointed a person. So no single elected official was responsible for the school system. And the school system was in really bad shape. Uh, you know, uh, achievement was way down. It was not improving. improving. Uh, the graduation rate had been stagnant at about 50% for more than 20 years. Uh, and, uh, you know, by the end of the 1990s, there was a consensus that something needed to be done. And this idea of mayoral control of the school system emerged. The notion that one elected official should be accountable for the performance of the school system. The state legislature refused to give that responsibility to Bloomberg's predecessor, Mayor Giuliani, because, quite frankly, they didn't like him and they didn't want to give him that power. But when Bloomberg got elected mayor, within the first couple months of his administration, he was able to convince the legislature that this, in fact, would be a good move. And by six months into his term, 
the, the system was changed. So now the mayor would have the ability to hire and fire the school superintendent called the chancellor in New York City uh, terms and have direct control over the school system. And was this a salutary move? Did this help? Yes, it was absolutely necessary. Under the previous uh, regime, if you were displeased either as an advocate or as an individual parent with the school system, there was no place to go with your complaint. Uh, parents would complain that they would get uh, shifted from office to office. They'd go to the school. The school would say you have to go to the district office. The district office would say you have to go downtown. This made it more of a one, one-stop shopping. There were clear lines of accountability for the school system. And what did he do? What did, how, what, what did he and his chancellor do to fix the schools? So Bloomberg obviously was mayor for 12 years, three full terms. He did a lot in those terms. I think that the common element of what he brought to the mayoralty in terms of public education was a relentless focus on achievement. In contrast to the previous administration and the previous form of governance of the school system, where nothing seemed to get better and also it's very difficult to bring about change, the Bloomberg administration was lightning fast in terms of coming out with new initiatives. And when they were not working, they were, they were not opposed to dropping what they were doing and pivoting and trying something different. So the, the common element throughout was a relentless focus uh, on achievement. So what's an example of something like an initiative that they tried and maybe it worked, maybe it didn't work, and how they you know, pivoted? So one of the first things they did once they got mayoral control of the school system was they tried to streamline administration in the school system. There had been since uh, 1970 or so 32 local school districts in the city, each with elected school boards that appointed their superintendents. Uh, on paper, that system still exists today, but administratively, Bloomberg changed it dramatically. In his first uh, uh, term in office, his first couple of years, he consolidated these 32 districts into 10 regions and put 10 regional superintendents in charge. It seemed to have some benefit to me and to others, but at the end of his first term, he decided that that was not good enough, and he eliminated the regions. and implemented what is now called the portfolio uh, system. Essentially, there were networks of schools in the school system that uh, bonded together because they had similar interests and similar approaches to education rather than being organized through geography. Part and parcel of this was an embrace of school choice, which probably is the most consistent effort that Bloomberg uh, followed in his years in office. School choice under Bloomberg in New York City encompassed two, uh, two types of school choice. Although his uh, school system, the New York City uh, Department of Education, was charged with running the traditional public schools in the city, Bloomberg and his chancellors embraced the, the possibility of charter schools. They made space available in public school buildings for charter schools, and they actively promoted the growth of charter schools in the city. In their time in office, 183 charter schools open. And by the time they left office, there were close to 100,000 kids in charter schools, starting from a base of about 1,000 or 2,000 before their uh, term. The second type of choice they embraced was within the, the district schools themselves. They gave New York City School District employees, union members all, the ability to propose the creation of new small public schools that would operate under the same rules as the public school system. They actually opened 510 of these small schools in their term in office. Uh, and they allowed public educators to be entrepreneurial and to try new things. In order to facilitate uh, the opening of all these new schools of choice, they also embraced a very robust system of school accountability. Schools were graded each year on a series of metrics, and those that came out near the bottom were subject to closure. In fact, they closed 131 schools for low performance in their term in office. Now, I know this, this question of school closure uh, became very controversial, and I know uh, when he took office, Mayor de Blasio 
very vigorously uh, opposed closing schools and said it was a disaster for communities. Who, what, what, what's wrong with closing a, uh, a school that's not doing well? Why was this such a point of contention? Although there was some ginned up uh, supposed community support uh, or community opposition to closing schools, in our own work uh, that I was involved in in a previous position, we did not find opposition amongst parents to closing poor schools. They wanted better and new new schools. It did create some displacement of uh, teachers in those schools. Some of those schools, some of those teachers in schools that were closed were unable to find positions in other schools. Uh, they did, if they were tenured, they did not lose their job, but they were placed in a pool of teachers who were circulated from school to school to fill in for other teachers. So it did create some discomfort for the teachers union and some of their allies in the community toward, particularly in the third of Mayor Bloomberg's terms, uh, started staging these, this public opposition to school closures. I don't believe that was very deep. I think the real issue there was not in the community, but in the, the discomfort caused to some uh, teachers. Uh, if if uh, Bloomberg and his chancellors could have done anything better, uh, one might fault them for not doing enough in terms of community engagement to counter that. One might argue that there's a natural process that goes on. Uh, as I say, they closed 130 of these schools over about a 10-year period. Uh, the, the first few years, it was low-hanging fruit. It was hard to defend uh, the schools that were, were closing. They were so low-performing. The deeper you got into it, some of the calls may have been questionable. Maybe they needed to do a little better work in convincing the public of why this was necessary. I should add, though, in, in closing on this topic, the research has been clear. The, the, students who, uh, the students who would have attended those schools that were closed did much better in the schools that replaced them than they would have. Regarding the teachers' union, um, you know, it, it, it's been thought, it's thought in New York that the teachers' union, you know, effectively controls the system. Um, to what extent is that true, and to what extent did uh, Bloomberg dismantle that system? What was the question, you know, uh, what was his relations with the teachers' union like? Yeah. His relations with the teachers' union were complex, and they're hard to characterize. Uh, yes, it is true before mayoral control and before Mayor Bloomberg came along, it was widely and publicly said that the teachers' union was the strongest center of power in the New York State legislature. Uh, uh, honestly, we, we achieved mayoral control probably because the teachers' union finally gave its assent to it under, on, in, in Mayor Bloomberg's first couple of months. It did appear over the mayor's term that the power of the teachers' union did wane. They did lose a couple of battles. They were opposed to the rapid expansion of charter schools, but it went ahead uh, otherwise. They ga they've gained back some of their power under his successor. But in terms of his own relations with the uh, uh, teachers' union, they were complex. I remember in his first term and, and parts of his second as well, there was criticism, probably valid, that he gave away pretty expensive uh, raises and other uh, uh, changes to the teacher's contract and perhaps didn't get much in return. Uh, but yet he was able to pursue his agenda. So he was playing perhaps a very crafty game with the unions. Uh, spending went up under Mayor, uh, Mayor Bloomberg, and it went up dramatically. And a lot of that went into teacher salaries. This changes by the end of his, his, end of his time in office. In his third term, uh, he, was not, he did not agree to a contract uh, for quite some time after it expired. And finally, the teachers' union decided to wait him out. So when Mayor de Blasio came in, the teachers were without a contract for about three or four years. Mayor de Blasio also gave a very generous uh, settlement to them. But certainly, uh, uh, Bloomberg's uh, record here, I think, was very pragmatic and mixed. Spending went up. Teacher salaries went up. But yet he was able to get out of the system things that he wanted that perhaps the union was not too crazy about. 
So finally, let's talk about charter schools. Uh, this is something, I mean, this is, you know, perhaps one of his most enduring legacies uh, from his mayoralty. Has it been positive? Is the charter experiment working? Uh, should it, you know, is it going to go away? You know, what's the story with charters? Charter schools have been uh, unequivocally positive on average in New York City. Uh, the best, uh, the highest scoring schools in New York State are New York City charter schools, most notably Success Academy, which is the largest uh, network of charters in the city. These are schools that operate in the poorest neighborhoods in New York City, and on the state tests at least, they get reading and math scores that are better than any other schools uh, in, the, in the state. Um, the interesting thing about Bloomberg, New York City, and charter schools, and this runs counter to the narrative that one hears about charter schools, that somehow they're bad for traditional public schools. This has not been the case in New York City. In New York City, under Mayor Bloomberg, uh, the charter schools grew tremendously. They, uh, uh, they got tremendous results, on average, with the students that they serve. At the same time, spending, both in aggregate and per pupil in the New York City district schools, went up. It's not true that charter schools diverted money from the district schools. And more importantly, the results show that under Mayor Bloomberg, the non-charter public schools in New York City made tremendous improvements in their test scores. Prior to his coming to office, the schools in New York City lagged behind the public schools in the rest of the state. By the time he left office, they were at about the state average uh, in New York City. So charter schools created new opportunities for students in low-income communities largely. They got very high results. But the public schools, the traditional public schools, improved as well. And so this was a gain on top of a gain for New York City. Uh, it, it, it was not the case in New York that the growth of charters meant uh, something bad happening in, in the district schools in the city. Interesting legacy. Ray, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. Continuing our discussion of Michael Bloomberg and his run for the Democratic nomination, we're joined by Steve Malanga. Steve is the senior editor of City Journal the George M. Yeager Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and the author of Shakedown, The Continuing Conspiracy Against the American Taxpayer. Steve, thanks for joining us on 10 Blocks. Fun to be here and talk about Mike. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Bloomberg as mayor, uh, what were his economic, what, what would you say about his economic policies, his economic outlook, Fiscally, I mean, where, where do we stand? Yeah, I mean, there's two ways to break it down. One is in terms of economic policy, but probably, you know, for uh, for people outside of New York City, what they would mostly be interested in as president is, you know, what he thought about taxes and what he thought about spending and whether that's evolving, mm. you know, how he spent. And it's a kind of complicated legacy because on, on the one hand, uh, very early in his administration, he raised taxes sharply. The tax that, that uh, he, as a mayor, was able to, to raise was the property tax, and he raised it 18.5%, which is a pretty big boost, considering that New York City already has among the highest property taxes in the nation. And um, the actual amount that the city collected in property taxes went up significantly during his period because they're constantly reassessing property. And to, um, you know, uh, to his credit, the city's economy grew. Um, after that, he didn't raise taxes much, uh, and he and he did come out, for instance, against things like a millionaire's tax in New York State, which the state assembly, uh, state legislature was trying to pass and did eventually pass at certain points. Um, he did come out against that and talked about how you're going to chase millionaires away. Of course, people could look at that as you know self-interest because he's very very much a millionaire. Um, uh, uh, and on spending, I would say it's something similar. Early on, and you know, he was faced with a, a, a drastic budget problem because, of course, after 9/11, the city's economy slowed down uh, uh, radically, and the city was spending lots of money on emergency services. Um, and that was one of the reasons that he raised taxes, even though there were many people, including us, who were advising him to cut other non-essential programs in, um, instead. 
Um, and, and he borrowed money to keep the city going, and that, that got a lot of criticism. Later on, actually, as his uh, tenure evolved, he became, uh, I think, more careful about spending. He had handed out big contracts to city workers after 9-11, which seemed to me one of the most unwise things that he did, you know, with a big uh, big budget deficits. And, and because, you know, he hadn't been supported by the, uh, by the public sector union, so there, it wasn't like he was even paying them back, if you will, for, for supporting him during the election. But, um, but as time went on, he actually became um, l- less willing to do those kinds of things, I think because he saw the vulnerability that New York City had with its uh, uh, high spending to, to economic downturns. And so during his whole last term, he uh, refused to cut uh, deals with, the, with the most of the unions in the city um, because they, didn't, they wouldn't give him the kind of concessions that, that he wanted. Um, so he kind of evolved on that. Now, where he is now, it's hard to tell. It's interesting. I did, if you watch his video that, uh, that's on his website, he does talk about taxing millionaires now uh, or taxing the rich, he talks about. Um, you know, to make America a fairer society. So, um, you know, I guess he could justify that on the grounds that he's talking about the presidential election and not a not um, not New York City or New York State where taxes are already high. But uh, 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 you know, he seems to be um, his position seems to be evolving right now. Well, he used to say that he. He loved billionaires, and he he thought New York City we, should have as many billionaires exactly, as possible. Exactly. Um, and I I guess when you're running a smaller jurisdiction like a city or a state, there is always the fear that people could flee uh, if you tax them punitively. And and he and he that was one of the reasons he upholds the millionaires tax. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And the, uh, uh, it is a you know it is a different equation nationally, um, uh, particularly because. Uh, uh, if you were to look at federal tax rates, they're not, you know, I mean, when you add the federal tax rates onto New York state tax rates, you get a, a, a very, very high bite on, on wealthy people in particular. And we've seen, especially within the, um, um, within the context of the, uh, the uh, Trump uh, 2017 reform taxes, uh, which eliminate the deductions for, you know, or cap the deductions for state and local taxes. I mean, we have seen more and more talk of, of, of wealthy people fleeing the state. So that is, a, that is an issue in Albany uh, and in New York City, especially because that's where most of those wealthy people live. People are, uh, you know, on, on, in the Democratic Party anyway, people are going back and forth. Is Bloomberg a liberal? Is he a conservative? Is he a real Democrat? Is he a pretend Republican? You know, you, you, you covered Bloomberg fairly closely. Would you say... Is he like a – people have said he's like a nanny state, big government type. Um, I mean, how would you characterize his, his approach to power? So I think way? what – yeah, so I think what you have to do is you do have to break it down into the different areas. I think on fiscal matters, he was um, what I would call moderate or maybe center-left leaning. Uh, and that includes – when we talk about fiscal matters, I think it also includes programs – uh, that the federal government finances, but that the states and cities run like Medicaid and welfare. Uh, to his credit, he continued the policy in, on, uh, the, uh, of the Giuliani administration on welfare of requiring people to migrate off of welfare into work. He said that welfare shouldn't be permanent. And he, uh, in fact, I guess you could say he's even expanded some of the work initiatives that the Giuliani administration had, impl- had implemented. Under Giuliani, the number of people on welfare in New York City declined from 1.1 million to 500,000. Under Bloomberg, it kept declining to, look to about 360,000. And that, in, and he, he hired as his, uh, you know, head of the uh, Health and Human Services Department, somebody who firmly believed in welfare to work. And uh, uh, was a very, uh, you know, uh, a- aggressive in moving people into jobs, you know, including into city jobs. As the city's economy expanded and and the employment in New York City grew, uh, a-, a good chunk of those people were actually welfare people on welfare who moved into city jobs. By welfare, we're talking about cash assistance. Yes, we're talking about the classic cash assistance. I, I absolutely, you know, uh, and um, and. 
you know, that was for years, you know, with the, the, the fundamental change in welfare that began in the 60s and migrated into the 70s and 80s was uh, people, be, people were allowed to stay on welfare permanently, almost for their entire lives, without having to do anything forward. Or, or they could, for instance, prolong welfare by just doing things like taking job training, even if it never led to a job. Um, what Giuliani did uh, is number one, he said, you, you, you know, uh, if you're able-bodied, you need to work and you can't satisfy your welfare requirement just by, go, by taking job training, for instance. You have to get somewhere with that and you have to stay, stay uh, in working. And the other thing that Giuliani did, which Bloomberg also did and actually um, I, I probably uh, increased, was uh, oversight over welfare eligibility. Many of the people in New York City who were on welfare turned out were not eligible, and that this had begun in the 70s when the city, or really in the late 60s, when the city essentially stopped certifying or verifying whether people was on, were on welfare. That was thought to be, I don't know, too aggressive enforcement. Giuliani brought enforcement back, and frankly, just sending out letters to people saying, uh, you know, you have to come down and visit your office, and, and, and uh, you know, tell us you are who you say you are, you know, suddenly people just started disappearing from the welfare rolls. And, and Bloomberg uh, continued that also saying, you know, we, we want to make sure this program goes to the people who are eligible for it. Uh, and, uh, and the same thing with Medicaid. Um, so that also continued to reduce the rolls in New York City. What about his, um, his use of government, uh, you know, to support Oh, his social agenda. Yeah. You know, people go on about the, the, sure. the sodas. So I think, so first of all, you're right, and this is where he got the, the reputation uh, uh, as running a nanny state. Uh, in particular, he's very interested in, I guess, people's personal health, and he made a commitment. He, he believes that you can use government to change people's personal habits. And part of this is a, um, a fundamental... Um, uh, 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 migration or evolution in the whole idea of what constitutes public health. Public health policy goes back really to the 19th century when government started doing things like installing sewers in order to, uh, you know, um, uh, 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 end outbreaks of infectious diseases. And that was considered public health for a long time. In the 20th century and in the late 20th century in particular, Public health became uh, public health medicine became much more aggressive in ways that are questionable. But, but maybe the classic case is the uh, 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 are, is government recommending what kind of a diet you should have, which has turned out to be um, extremely uh, controversial because um, there's really no settled science on that at this, at this particular point. Bloomberg, though, believed that you could change people's um, uh, uh, habits. And so he, you know, he had a ban on big gulps and he re required large chain restaurants to uh, put the calories next to their, um, uh, you know, next to their on their menus to show. And now, none of this, no, no research has ever shown that this has any kind of an effect. And, um, and over Bloomberg's term, it, things like uh, that you would, I guess, measure like, uh, like the incidence of diabetes and the overall, let's say, average weight of a New York, those things didn't really change significantly during that period of time. Um, the larger issue with all of this, though, is that uh, he does believe, I guess you could say, in lar more, more largely in the idea of government regulation. Uh, and even if you were to extend this to an area that I think is more significant and more troubling, though, though it doesn't get as much uh, publicity, is his regulation of business, particularly small business in New York. Um, he could be, they could be, the Bloomberg administration could be pretty aggressive in fines and fees on small businesses and, um, and uh, even uh, things like um, uh, uh, designs, storefront designs, enforcing storefront designs throughout the city, you know, and, uh, 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 and that was quite controversial. And the reason I think that's generally significant is a, a president does have tremendous regulatory powers just through uh, executive orders these days. You know, presidents now enforce a lot of their, of their will, if you will, or a lot of their agenda, not necessarily through Congress, but, uh, but through executive orders. And in particular, that's the way the regulatory state has grown. Um, 
Uh, and so I, for a mayor who believes that government can change people's, you know, habits, I think we would, um, I, I mean, I think that might be a significant uh, way that he would exercise his authority. Um, and again, there are a lot of, one of the things we, I mean, New York is an interesting example because there are a lot of unintended consequences when government tries to do that. I think probably the most interesting one is, um, you know, Bloomberg uh, uh, was a former smoker and he's a very much, you know, spent a lot of money on anti-smoking campaigns around the world through his foundation. New York City, he raised taxes on, uh, 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 New York State already has the highest taxes on cigarettes, uh, packs of cigarettes in the country. He raised them in New York City even higher, like $1.20 higher than the New York State level. One of the things that's resulted in is New York State has the largest by far underground market for cigarettes in the country. And the famous or infamous Eric Gardner case where uh, 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 the confrontation between uh, someone who was selling cigarettes illegally and the police department, which was periodically sent out to enforce the law um, uh, against the underground marketplace in order to um, give some force to the um, uh, to the uh, to the uh, the cigarette the higher cigarette taxes, I mean it, it, you know that resulted of course in in the confrontation that Gardner lost his life and it was a, a tremendous controversy that went on for years. Uh, it's it helped to I think undermine some of the confidence in the police department and minority communities. You know, but underlying all of that was this idea that the regulatory state has to be enforced in some way. And, um, and uh, you know, that was kind of like a flashpoint. Well, it looks like we've got a, um, a budding authoritarian running for president. <laughs> Steve, thanks so much for joining us today. We'd love to hear your comments about today's episode on Twitter at City Journal, hashtag 10 blocks. If you like our show and want to hear more of it, Please leave ratings and reviews on iTunes. This is your host, Seth Barron. Thank you, Steve, for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.